So, how is uh, how's everybody dealing with the heat? Enjoying the lovely balmy summer temperatures? Spending lots of time outside? <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, silence says no. But, um, yeah, a few weeks and hopefully it'll curb its enthusiasm and uh, we'll be back to uh, warm, not melting. Uh, so, as Andre said, uh, we are looking at the prophets of old, and uh, this is now the third week of our uh, summer series, if you like, the, the, what we're doing over the summer, uh, looking through the uh, major themes in the minor prophets, and, uh, and looking how they point to the greater truth and reality of Jesus. And we said uh, last week with Joel, and the week before that with Hosea, why are we doing this? Well, in a nutshell, we're doing this because Jesus himself said that all Scripture points to him. Uh, so we can just absolutely throw away this idea that Jesus is in the New Testament. Full stop. Uh, Genesis. <laughs> Genesis 1.1 to the end of Revelation is in every single book of the Bible. Some books, it's, uh, you need to do a bit more investigation to, uh, to find him. But uh, yeah, he's there in every single book of the Bible. So that's why we're doing this. We're looking at minor prophets, how they point to Jesus, what they show us about Jesus. And in Luke 24, 27, we read, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. So uh, let's go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos. Uh, it's about three quarters of the way through your Bible. Uh, it is after Joel that we talked about last week, and it's before Obadiah, what we were the, the, the book that we will talk about next week. Uh, if you're on a Bible app, uh, it's probably about three quarters of the way down the list of books on your app. And uh, if you're following along with the, the YouVersion Bible app, the event that you can do that uh, through the, the Bible app, then this is all there for you. Anyway, so what are we talking about today? We're talking about Amos and the major theme of, uh, of social justice. And as with Joel, as with Hosea, and every, as with every other minor prophet to come, some background facts about him and the book and uh, the time that they were living in. So apparently Amos was the first prophet to leave behind his message in written form which is quite interesting. Uh, he was a man from Judah called to prophesy and to minister in Israel. So he lives in one nation and he's called to ministry in another. So therefore, Amos is a missionary taking the good news, uh, well, not overseas as such, but into a, a different nation, into a different land. Uh, Amos was a literal sheep breeder. He was a, ma a man who raises Sheep, not a, he doesn't use the word shepherd like a, a spiritual shepherd and a, a guardian as such. In uh, chapter 1, verse 1, read the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So he, was a, he, he worked with sheep. He was a literal shepherd, and he tended fig trees on the side as well. Uh, he was a regular guy doing what God had gifted and interested him to do, who was then called to serve the Lord in a new and different way that wasn't easy, but he trusted God and went with it. And what a great lesson that is for us anyway already. Regular people serving God who were asked to step out and serve in a new way. And the call to serve God came while he was working. So if you're looking for a change, if you're looking for a challenge, if you feel the call of God on your life to do something a bit different, don't just sit around and wait for it. The call comes when working. Uh, Amos lived 
between Israel and Judah in a place called Tekoa, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And he lived in times of material prosperity. Uh, the kings and the kingdoms at the time were materially successful but spiritually empty in the eyes of the prophets. And for a period of probably no more than a year, Amos gave God's message to the northern kingdom. Uh, his ministry, as we read here, was two years before the earthquake. And uh, the historian Josephus connects this earthquake with the events of Second Chronicles 26. And uh, archaeological excavations at a couple of sites around the area have uncovered evidence of a massive earthquake around 760 BC. So this is the first, the first verse. It roots this book in history, in, in secular history, in demonstrable history. So it's not just a story that somebody made up about a guy called Amos. So... What did they say? What did Amos say? Well, as a quick outline, chapters 1 and 2 are messages to the nations around uh, and to Israel as well. So he kind of draws this concentric circle, like a circle that gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller around their neighbors. Uh, and he, he gives seven messages, five for the nations and two for God's people, and finishes with this big, beefy judgment against Israel where he essentially says, uh, there is no social justice. You're treating everybody differently based on their circumstances. And these are the same people that God saved out of that very same situation all those years before from Egypt in the Exodus. So you can see already that they were saved from one situation. Now they're actively putting this on other people. Uh, chapters 3 to 6 are poems expressing this message with a bit more detail. And uh, throughout we see, hear, hear this, this is what's going on, and then therefore this is going to happen. So he, he details what's happening and what's going to happen about it. And then chapters 7 through 9 are visions of coming judgment. He sees locusts, he sees fire, he sees overripe, soft, nasty fruit, he sees plumb lines, uh, he sees an idolatrous temple being struck. Uh, generally, he just sees corruption being destroyed. And the final paragraph, like we said last week, the Minor Prophets, there is often chapters and chapters and chapters of judgment. The final paragraph of Amos brings wonderful hope. And he sees right the way forward to the future millennial reign of Christ on the earth. So there are a few key verses referenced here. Uh, on the screen, and they're there for you if you're looking on the Bible app. But uh, what did he say? Well, we'll pick it up in chapter 2, in verse 4, because judgment is coming on God's people. So we'll start reading together from chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. 
So it's not a particularly positive start, as it, for God's people in this book. So the pattern of chapters 1 and 2 is, is shown here, and this is not for literal sins. Like you've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned. Now you've done the fourth thing, and now you're in trouble. It's just, a, it's, just it, it's sin upon sin upon sin. It's the, he's saying that they're living a sinful lifestyle. It's a pattern for three transgressions of Israel and for four. So the northern kingdom here that he's talking to, the northern kingdom of Israel, had piled sin upon sin upon sin, just like the nations around them. And Amos saw the injustice of rich against poor and how the rich took advantage of the poor. We read, because they, the rich, the privileged, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. So Amos saw this. And more importantly, God saw this injustice and God promised judgment. This is not all right. And he sees the holy and righteous name of God being profaned, being slandered, being dragged through the mud because of the conduct of his people, which today is is you and me. People who say, yes, I'm a believer, but then live as if that is not true. As we read here, they, that profanes the name, that gives God a bad name. Gives a bad name to other people who profess to be believers and live like it. And Amos saw this, God saw this and says, it's just not right. We read, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. And this is idolatrous temple worship practices. It boils down to living like everybody else around you, doing what everybody else does, but calling yourself a believer. Which is just not right. We carry on in, uh, in verse 8. We read, They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And these are God's people. These are people who, who, who say that they know God and they're living a godly life. And we read, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. So these are God's people. He's done stuff with and for them. And they're, then they're now bringing shame to his name. They're giving God a bad name, giving believers a bad name. And he says, look, therefore, because you're my people, because you know better, because you've seen me in action, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Essentially, the stuff you've done wrong, I've seen it, it's not all right, and you're going to feel the the punishment. It's It's just not all right. And really, we see that Amos is saying that with this wonderful privilege of being God's people comes a great responsibility. And you can kind of drift off and start thinking about, I think it was Spider-Man who said something like that. With great power comes great responsibility. Some people are nodding, Spider-Man, Batman, some kind of man. Uh, But here it's the privilege. The privilege of being God's people comes with a huge responsibility. And in chapter 2, verse 9, we see what wonderful privilege they've had as God's people. We read, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I have destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. So this, this seemingly inconquerable enemy that was there in the promised land when God's people arrived, God beat for them, God destroyed, drove them out of the land. And yet the people are not really living how they should be living. And we carry on in verse 10. It was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not 
Indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. So he delivered them from bondage, led them in the wilderness for 40 years, provided for them, raised up people as prophets to, to, to speak his word to them. And they're just not living like it. So God reminds them of his past power and faithfulness. Like we said, when they came into the promised land, they were afraid of the mighty nations that were already there. And God conquered them. So again, it boils down to making it really simple. How could they reject and despise a God who had done so much for them? They've seemingly forgotten all that God has done for them. And being God's people really is, not, is no excuse for sinful lives. It's actually, it's quite the opposite. No matter who we are, as we said last week, uh, God is holy and pure and righteous and he must take action against sin. So we to use our, our privilege as God's people for, for good, not for indulgence and, and then, oh, well, it's, it's all right because I, I know who Jesus was and I know what he did so I can do what I like and just kind of, you know, uh, plead the, the blood. It's fine. Cause I'll do what I like, but he, he took care of it, so it's fine. I can carry on doing this. And the, the principle here is that walking with God, really, a, lot, a good portion of it should be, we should feel very grateful. We should have this attitude of gratitude for what he's done for us. It's really important for us as a believer. We've said this before, haven't we, that uh, Old Testament people, these people would look back to the Exodus, to the time when God delivered them from slavery, from bondage. And for us, we continually look back to the cross. And when we've got to live our lives in the light of what he has done for us and not take that for granted and just kind of use and abuse it. Because we, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for his finished work on the cross. And we wouldn't be we. There would be no we for us to talk about, would there? Are you with me? There wouldn't be, we wouldn't be us without the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Well, what else does he say? He says basically that social, just, social injustice will not be tolerated. If you flick forward a couple of chapters to uh, chapter 8 in verse 4, chapter 8 verse 4 we read, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. He's saying that social injustice will not be tolerated. It's not all right to live like this. There's people here that Amos is pronouncing judgment upon from God, cared nothing about human suffering, the inability of the poor to pay ridiculously high prices for stuff. Instead, supposed believers in God forced the needy into slavery for insignificant sums. And the principle, God has more interest in their oppressive practices and their horrible social relationships than in their empty religious practices. Are you with me? God cares more about how they treat other people than what they come and say and do when gathered together. So yes, we've seen this before, we've said this before, we'll say it again and we'll see it again. God cares more about mercy than sacrifice. Amen? Mercy over sacrifice. Even though they stop for the Sabbath, they're doing it for the wrong reasons. 
They're doing it because it's a, a legal requirement, not because they're resting and the wonderful rest of God and they're following his, his Genesis-given pattern for work, work six, rest one. They're doing it because they've got to do it, not because they know they should and it's good for them. And without a loving personal relationship with God, sacrifice and religious practices are just uh, empty and, uh, frankly, uh, worthless. It's just nothing, is it? It's just going to a place and saying some words. And this oppression, this how they were living in relation to the to the poor, emptied their pockets, emptied the, the pockets of the poor, to then sell themselves into slavery, basically do whatever the rich people commended, which in essence is slavery, is it not? And sometimes the price of a pair of sandals forced the poor to enslave themselves. Can't afford any new shoes, therefore I'm going to have to sell myself into slavery. And just think, when was the last time you bought a pair of shoes? And how much did they cost? And is that worth you putting yourself into slavery to somebody else's will, basically, for the price of a pair of shoes? And people I read this week would go so far as to sweep the floors of those shops on a night, gathering all the dust and the husks from the wheat and all the leftover bits and mix it in with the grain to cut it down and to sell it like that because they were so concerned with making money and keeping poor people poor. These are people, these are God's people. These are people who God has brought out of slavery and given a new life to who are now treating other people like this. It's just not all right, is it? And we think, how could people who did, did this, how can they then think of themselves as God's people? How can they do this in the week, go to temple, and think that their worship is pleasing to God whilst they're doing whatever they want in the week? How can you behave like this in the week and then go and worship God? That's essentially what Amos is saying. You can't do this one day a week, live like this for the rest, and think that that is all right. So that's what he said. We'll see what he means. What does he mean by this? We'll flesh this out a bit more. And again, there's a key verse up there, uh, Amos 5.24. And there's, obviously, there's more to take away than one verse. But the key thought of that verse, which we'll get to in a, little, in a, in a minute, is the same as the key message of the whole book. In that, the, that a, real, a real relationship with God transforms our relationships with other people. A real relationship with God transforms our relationships with other people. So in chapter 5, verse 21, we read, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. This is really strong stuff, isn't it? Ditch the empty religious practices. And as we carry on reading, chapter 5, verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So ditch the empty religious practices and be more concerned with how you interact with everybody around you. And what God wants from us is justice and righteousness. And sometimes it's really useful to see what these words mean in the language that the Bible was originally written in. So justice and righteousness in Hebrew. Righteousness 
means the right and equitable relationship with people. In this context, righteousness means right, equitable relationships with people despite their social status. It doesn't matter who or where you're from, what you do. Righteousness here means having a right and equitable relationship with other people. And God wants justice. And justice is the action that we take to create righteousness. So this verse is just wonderful. God wants the actions that we take to create right relationships with other people to just be so ever-flowing like water. And he wants these right and equitable relationships to just be everywhere with other people. And instead of rituals and performance, God wants a relentless commitment to justice and righteousness. He wants a, he, God wants, wanted here for these people, wants for us to, a passionate concern for the rights of everybody. Rich, poor, everybody. A concern that would roll on like we read, like an ever-flowing river and a stream and just a never-failing fount that never runs dry. God wants our day-to-day life to be full of righteousness and, and justice and integrity and goodness. And there's one, this comes after we're talking about worship, 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 worship. Forget that stuff, do this. And what God wants from us from worship, one requirement for people who come before him to worship, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So true, true heartfelt worship when we gather and assemble together depends on true righteousness lived out during the other days of the week, essentially. Like we said with Hosea, does our weekly worship, this, when we get together, does this match us during the week? Because if there's a huge disconnect, then we're not experiencing this for all that it could be. And we're not offering to God what He really, really wants. And we see that really only people who, who obey God, who live the life that He has set out before us, that's, that's true worship to God. So we can't, we can't get road rage on a Sunday when you're driving on the highway off to work. We can't lie and cheat at work on a Monday. We can't tell lies and gossip on a Tuesday. Watch inappropriate TV and movies on a Wednesday. Get drunk on Thursday because it's the end of the week. Then come to church on Friday. Sing. Listen to God's word and think, yeah. I am all right before God because I've been to church. It's, that's just, just not, it's just not all right. We can't do that in the week and then come and do some churchy stuff on a weekend. Our worship comes directly from our, our life. Our weekly worship should flow from the experiences we've got in the week. We should be thankful. We should want to come to church, gather together and honor God and glorify God and recharge and, and refill ourselves so the week ahead we can go out and pour ourselves out to the people around us. And a life of obedience brings this, this acceptable worship to God. Like he said, I'm not going to look at the sacrifices. I'm just not interested in empty religious practice. I'm interested in the life that you live each and every day through faith in Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Really simply, God wants righteousness before ritual. And like we said, mercy before sacrifice. And I love, uh, I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, see how God speaks about public worship and formal sacrifices when the heart 
is not right with him. Look what God says about empty religious practices. When the moral conduct of the offerer is wrong, the Lord will not accept his offering. Oh, that is difficult stuff to be told, isn't it? When our moral conduct, when our life is not right, the Lord will not accept his offering, says Charles Spurgeon. And Amos writes essentially the same thing. The words of God, I'm not, I'm not going to accept these sacrifices. Just not interested when what you're living is just not right. So, as believers, uh, Christians often quote Amos for this emphasis on social justice. And it is the, the major theme of the book, and quite rightly so. But we need to learn to balance it with the, 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 the gospel bigger pictures. So Amos's judgment God's judgment via Amos of Israel's life of luxury and laziness at the expense of the poor shouldn't be treated as, look, this is what the gospel is all about, social ethics, do uh, live well, do good, and uh, just, just be good, you know, like E.T., just be good. The heart of Christianity of our faith is, is the gospel, the good news, the truth of Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he does, and what he will do. The heart of the gospel is not social justice. It's a very important part of the life that we now live. But it, we shouldn't boil Amos down to be all about social justice. Um, there are implications for, for society uh, when we are living that gospel-centered life. But we shouldn't boil everything down to just do good and treat the poor very well. So Amos then, how does Amos actually point to the greater reality and truth of Jesus? Where is the gospel in Amos? Well, as we said last week, the day of the Lord for believers has been taken care of in the past. And that was something kind of difficult to understand for us, that this future day of judgment that's coming where God uh, bring, we said uh, the, the, the full wrath of God has been poured out twice in history, once at the very, very end of time as we know it, the very, very end of Revelation, and then once on the cross. And believing in Jesus, our future day of judgment has been taken care of in the past. And in chapter 8 of Amos, we read of, the, of this coming judgment, the response of God to the rampant sin of his people, of, of just, well, of just people, full stop, the ungodly conduct. The day of the Lord, as we said last week in Joel, we talked about it quite a lot. So in Amos 8 verse 9, we read, And on that day declares the Lord God. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. So that, that is coming at the end of time. That is the day of the Lord. That is the judgment. That is God acting upon sin. And I read this week that injustice is relatively easy to bear. But what stings is justice. And this is going to sting, isn't it? The, the, we read, it's like it's going to be mourning for an only son. And that really speaks of the, the depths of mourning, just the depths of sadness and the depths of regret that the day of the Lord is going to bring for people. But as we continue through chapter 8 into chapter 9, we see the descriptions of the coming judgment, and right at the very end, there is hope. Chapter 9, verse 11, In that day 
I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. All the nations. And in verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So right at the very end of this book, there's the promise to take what was ruined, to repair and raise and rebuild. Sometimes God works in a completely new way. Sometimes the old thing dies and there's a new creation. Sometimes it's it's raising up, it's, it's, it's repairing, it's rebuilding. And both are wonderful works of the Lord. Uh, James, brother of Jesus, quoted this, this passage, a part of this passage at the Council of Jerusalem, and he, to, to show God's promise to reach the Gentiles, to bring them into his kingdom under the Messiah, not under laws and old covenant, not under the nation of Israel. All nations come to God through faith in Jesus. And that this, James used this to show that, that this wonderful life is available to everybody, people of all nations and tribes and tongues. And what a wonderful opportunity we have to live this out here in this country, such a cross-section of society. If you just look around, around here, you will see people from all nations and tribes and languages, people from all walks of life. So what an opportunity we've got to, to start in our own church family, but then out into the community that we are part of now here, to live this radically different life of gospel social justice that essentially says that Jesus died for all to bring all into his kingdom, no matter who we are, no matter where we're from, no matter what we do, no matter our social status, career path, or who we were before we knew him, Jesus died for all. Amen? But let's just, let's just read that again. We'll go back to chapter 8 and we'll pick it up in verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? So this is coming. This is coming, and the justice that's going to be, going to be meted out is going to sting. Like we said, it's, it's a real, it's going to be painful. And in verse 9, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, darken the earth in broad daylight, and will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. So we'll just look at this. Look at the details in here. What does this bring to mind? What do we notice in this passage? Well, right at, the, right, at the, right at the beginning of it, we see that time doesn't erase sin. And we know that Jesus does, don't we? In chapter 8, 
in verse 7, we read, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. And it made me think about that, um, that Adele song where she sings about that, you know, time is supposed to heal you. I'm not going to sing it. Time is supposed to heal you, but I ain't done much healing. God says here, I'm never going to forget. If you're living under this old way of life, I'm never going to forget all that you've done wrong. But we know that time doesn't erase sin. We know that Jesus does, don't we? We're reading Colossians 2.14, that the record of our debt, all the wrong that we've done, if we're living a life of faith in Jesus, was nailed to the cross in him. Under the new covenant, we read in Hebrews, I will remember your sins no more. And then we read, shall not the land tremble when the day of the Lord comes? And like we said, there was evidence of a massive earthquake around this time. So Amos's words came true at the time. But then think, just pause and think. We said that prophecy has an immediate fulfillment to give it some credibility. But then it also looks forward as well and points to Jesus. Shall not the land tremble when the day of the Lord comes? And we read in Matthew 27, that on the day that Jesus was crucified, there was an earthquake. And Matthew wrote his account of the gospel with a primarily Jewish audience in mind. And he mentions this. Matthew mentions the earthquake because he knows that Jewish people who know the Scriptures are going to connect these dots. The Old Testament, the prophets, the day of the Lord, there's, a, there's an earthquake. And the day that Jesus was crucified, there was an earthquake. We read, I will make the sun go down at noon. And in Luke 23, 44, we read it was now about the sixth hour, which is noon. So if you want to start living a biblical life, wake up at six o'clock every day. Because by noon, you're in the sixth hour. The day starts at six, which is shocking to some people. But biblical day starts at six. Anyway, so it was now about the sixth hour, noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed. Are you with me so far? Where we're going with this? Amos is talking about the immediate future, but he's looking forward to the day of the Lord as well. And we read, I will make it like the morning for an only sun, and the end of it like a bitter day. And you know, a, a, lit, a literal word-for-word Translation of John 3.16 would say this. This is how God loved the world. This is how God shows that he loves the world. This is what he did to prove his love, that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amos says, God says via Amos, I'll make it like the morning for an only son on the day of the Lord. And John says, this is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son. So on the day of the Lord, we know, don't we, Jesus died for all to bring all into his kingdom, no matter who we are, no matter where we're from, no matter what we do, no matter our social status, career path, who we, who we were before we, we accepted this wonderful life-changing truth. Jesus died for all. And our day of the Lord, as believers in Jesus, has already occurred. For those that don't, Believe in Jesus, who he was, what he did, what he does, and what he will do. He's believing in Jesus. The day of the Lord has not happened. Jesus died to provide equal 
an unending access to God the Father, to provide the privileges of being children of God, to be God's people again, to provide the spiritual richness that comes from walking with Him, to provide gospel social justice. So if, and if you Google, if you look up in a dictionary or whatever, social justice, you're going to see something like this. Social justice is the equal access to wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. That's what the world says social justice is like. So society's version of social justice will tell us that we need to look around. We need to see everybody's differences. We are all unique snowflakes. We need to look around and notice every single way we are different. And then we need to affirm and accept all these minute differences in ourselves. And society, social justice says, I see your differences and I'm going to recognize your differences. I'm going to treat everybody the same despite the fact we are all so very different. But we're going to, I'm going to work really hard to treat you the same. But first, let's differentiate between ourselves as much as we can and then work hard to bring ourselves together. And then when we've done that, we'll differentiate, we'll work really hard for equality for all these different groups that we've just made. And gospel social justice says it doesn't matter, it just doesn't matter color of skin, color of passport, social status, what we do, who we are. Gospel social justice says we are all made in the image of God and that is how we have dignity and worth and value and that's what we need to affirm and acknowledge Saying, look, I'm going to treat all these nations the same still actually acknowledges that you're also very different. And gospel social justice doesn't, just doesn't see the difference. Saying, I'm going to treat all people the same, rich and poor, still acknowledges different socioeconomic levels and acknowledges that you see the difference, rich people, poor people. Gospel social justice just doesn't see the difference. Gospel social justice just sees people. Full stop. Social justice sees difference, but works towards equality, works to treat people equally. Gospel social justice just sees people as equal to begin with. And we live, we live don't we, in a, in a fallen world that expects some level of submission based on social status, where you're from, the color of the passport that you carry, the color of the skin that you're in. But as believers, we know this is not right, don't we? We know that true submission is given to God who doesn't distinguish by race or gender or color or bank balance. So think about this. Gospel social justice is not equality. It's impartiality. Gospel social justice is not equality. For many, 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 many different groups, it's impartiality. Just not caring where people are from, who they are, and what they do. In Ephesians 2, uh, we're, we're reading about Jews and Gentiles, two very different groups of people. And in Ephesians 2, we'll pick it up in verse 14. We read, He Himself, Jesus, Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man 
in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And in Galatians 3, we read there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? When God looks at us, He doesn't see different, all the differences. He just sees people that He loves. So we'll finish with this. Gospel, social justice just sees everybody as equal. And we said, on the day of the Lord, Jesus died for all to bring all into His kingdom, no matter who we are, no matter where we are from, no matter what we do, no matter our social status, career path, or who we were before we acknowledged this wonderful truth. Jesus died for all. Amen? Amen.